think that as adults, we get so uncomfortable in silence. We just want to rush in and answer it for the student because we're like, oh man, this is uncomfortable. But it's like, no, in that silence is where the ideas generate, you know, students can start piecing together. They can start thinking critically and that takes time. And so it's one of those skills that I can teach students where it's like when we're brainstorming, it, it sometimes shouldn't be a fast process. Sometimes it is, but sometimes it's not, and that's okay. And so that inquiry piece was just so pivotal to be able to bring that into all of the different content areas, science, social studies, reading, writing, yeah. math. It's just so cool to see it. And so just being able to honor that wait time and then being able to allow the share time for students to actually share aloud, which is going to then spur like some other student to think about something else. So that domino effect is so worth it. We're Megan and Alyssa, former teachers and founders of Pop PD, a peer learning platform for K-12 educators. On the Extracurricular Podcast, we're interviewing the most passionate, forward-thinking educators to uncover tangible strategies you can use in your classroom right away. Megan Polk is a resource creator and podcast host who helps upper elementary teachers create engaging and effective literacy instruction. Her joy and passion for teaching is contagious in this episode, and you will feel it when you listen to this podcast. Megan shares strategies for using inquiry to help students answer tough questions and take action. She talks about how to bring community and culture into your classroom to help your students feel seen and how that can make their classroom experience one to remember for a lifetime. Megan shares a few ways to scaffold your students toward those higher level thinking strategies from a very young age all the way up to high school. We know you will love this deep dive into strategy with Megan. If you've ever been required to attend a PD that had nothing to do with your subject area or that was taught by someone who hasn't stepped foot in a classroom, you understand the mission behind our peer learning platform, Pop PD. Both the Extracurricular Podcast and That Teacher Podcast are brought to you by the team at Pop PD. Our mission is to empower teachers to connect with one another around sharing teaching strategies, tips, tricks, and ideas you actually want, creating a learning experience as dynamic as you are. We know you need access to ongoing relevant resources to support your teaching career, and it's our mission to help you feel fully supported as a modern educator. Check out our beta platform now at poppd.co and join the waiting list to be one of the first to try the new version of our platform when it's released by visiting poppd.co slash waiting list. Okay, we are here with Megan. Well, Megan and Megan. <laughs> We're going to have to yes, say like... Great episode. (laughs) (laughs) Megan P and Megan K. Um, But Megan is here to talk to us all about her strategies, her wonderful uh, strategies that she shares online. And we're going to start with your journey into becoming an educator. So can you kind of jump in and tell us a little bit about how did you become an educator? Sure. Well, I'm so happy to be here. And I think my journey into education, I feel differs from a lot of the people's journeys that I heard in my college classes. A lot of them were like, oh, you know, I my mom was a teacher. You know, I come from a family of teachers or I have like my favorite teacher and they inspired me. And I was actually the opposite. I grew up as a military brat. I moved around my whole life. I lived in 13 states and two countries before college. Wow. So, 
Yeah. And what was so interesting is that no matter how many places I lived, I cannot recall the majority of my teachers. I can't recall my classroom experiences. I cannot even remember the name of the school that I attended. And so when I got into college and my first essay for my education class was tell me about like, you know, how you got inspired for teaching and your favorite teacher. They gave us little bullets, like talk about your favorite teacher, tell us about your favorite school and experience. And I was literally stumped. So I did take my own approach to that. And so from that time, I basically wrote that I vowed to be a teacher that no matter when, how long I had my students, they would be able to grow up, graduate college and be able to talk about their teacher, mainly me being one of them as someone that they would actually remember. So that's why I became an educator outside of just loving children. It was really because my system of going through the educational system, my journey was not a typical one. Wow. That story is so great. And I think as teachers, like one of the most satisfying parts of the job is when a student comes back and says, thank you, or I remember you. So how did literacy come into play? I think the listeners, after after I give the introduction, will kind of get, an, get a glimpse as to what your specialty is. But like, when did you know that literacy was it? This was the, the area you wanted to focus on. So I loved math growing up. Math was my thing. I think that a lot of students, you know, with numbers, the absolutes, it can be pretty um, easy, easier than reading and writing, let's say. But for my educational journey, I only worked in Title I schools. And so I had students who were, you know, two, three, four grade levels behind. I also had ESL students, a high population of ESL. And then I also, we had a high just population of special education and other types of needs in our schools. And so when I moved from second grade to fourth grade, I was like, whoa, the learning gap was so huge. And I think in second grade, you really don't see it as much. But when you get into like fourth grade, fifth grade, you start seeing that massive gap. And I realized that, you know, those students who scored so well in math in first and second grade started dwindling and it was because of those word problems. And so I realized that, okay, to make them successful, because I was always um, a self-contained teacher, I taught all subjects, even in fourth grade. And so I just kind of realized the importance of literacy. Like we have to be able to read in order to even be able to do these math problems now, like the skills that you know. And so I just made it a really clear focus to put an emphasis on literacy and catching students up, closing the gap and being able to give them all types of experiences with language. So that is kind of how my big push to literacy um, came to be was that big gap with what my students were entering my classroom with. Were you just like trying strategies, testing, like seeing what worked or were you kind of going off of a particular, like following a particular literacy specialist or a particular method or were you kind of just coming up with things? So in my schools, because uh, we were in those Title I, we did have, um, we didn't really necessarily have like any specialists (laughs) in our schools. So we didn't even have anyone guiding us. And some of the curriculum that we got would be heavily for math, not necessarily for the reading and writing aspect. And so a lot of it was trial and error. I really just had to kind of figure out, okay, let me figure out who's in my classroom. And every year would differ because there would be one year where I was very, very boy heavy and they loved all things like dinosaur and space. And so I'm like, great, if I could bring in some dinosaur and space types of materials and graphics or diagrams with labeling, I could get them to write and try to phonetically spell 
based on a label of a dinosaur. And so it really did. It was a lot of trial and error based on what my students needed. But I think the best part of not having a full-blown curriculum given to me was that I did find the value of looking in my community, looking at my students, and being able to differentiate based on every class's need. And then also I had to turn to people. So I had to do those strategies of talking next door, talking to another school, meeting people at trainings and actually following up. So that's kind of how um, that came to be. So interesting. These themes keep coming up for us. And one thing Megan and I talk about a lot is is that teacher next door, how the best trainings come for the teacher next door, which is one of the reasons we started Pop PD, because now the best trainings come from the teacher down like in three states over because of social media. So, but yes. but we didn't always, you didn't always have that. And depending on which school you were in, your colleagues may or may not have been supportive or helpful and people have all different situations, but really the best learning comes from going into the other classrooms and seeing what teachers are doing. The other thing that theme that keeps popping up is community, like just knowing your community, knowing where your kids are from and the types of things they're surrounded by. It's so important when we're thinking about developing curriculum for them just to consider that. Yes. Yes. And that's where I think a basis of my ideas come from as well. So I think another interesting thing you bring up too is, um, you know, I didn't, when we were talking about literacy, I, you know, not knowing a, a ton about how you got into literacy to start, I think, oh, she's, she loves to read or write. It's, I assumed it was going to kind of come from that, you know, ELA start, right? That approach. So I, I love that you kind of came at it from that math angle and said, if I want these kids to be strong in math, we got to uplift everywhere, right? Like, and, and so that idea of I'm really interested in interdisciplinary teaching and that, that thought that like, how can, it's really about skills and how can, you know, we think about skills from different areas and those combine to make students better in a number of different ways. So I think that's really neat that that's kind of how you approach it. And then I'm sure that also influenced, you know, how you were starting to look for, for strategies and how to, how to encourage students and teach them. And hey, even that teacher next door, it could be someone who focused on science. It could be someone who was doing all the subjects like you were, but you can really pull inspiration from a number of different places. It doesn't just have to be you know, the one subject or the one area that you think that you're necessarily focusing on. Yeah. And I think that that's such a key piece because I do think that sometimes it's like, okay, I'm in, I'm in social studies. It has to be this, but it's like, no, we can bring in writing. We could bring in reading. We could bring in, you know, with, with science, we can bring in, you know, writing out the steps and writing a prediction. And so I think whenever I was able to embed all these different angles. It almost was like tricking the students into learning, but really for them, it was just being able to have an experience and they were able to, you know, use whatever skills they had and they could strengthen those. So I love that you brought that up too. We'll have to like try to connect the dots here, but in our past couple of interviews, we've talked to an art teacher that was bringing in community by, you know, creating a mural of different landmarks in the community. We talked to a math teacher who was bringing in doing like a math lesson where they looked at menus from places inside of their community. I would love to know like how how did like considering your community help drive some of the decisions that you were making when you were testing out some of this curriculum or how are you thinking about that? So with one of the schools in particular that I worked at, it was, I worked at an IB school. And so even though it was, you know, international baccalaureate, we had a ton of different cultures represented. And even though that's like such an amazing, you know, type of school to be in, it was also uh, in the back realm of 
one of the, well, I'm not going to say the poorest neighborhoods in um, Houston because the front end of it was a very, you know, affluent part of it. But it's just how we were um, positioned where we were still Title I. And so with that community piece, it was, you know, a lot of the time it is one of the aspects is like diversity. And so that is the first time in my career where I really was thinking I need to have books and text. And if I find videos, is this one's quick, but is this the best option? Is there another option that I could be able to bring in? And then also utilizing the families. I know that some of the time, sometimes the families might be like, well, I really can't help with this because I might not know the language, but you could still provide an experience. You can still provide an artifact or you can still teach something or show something that we could be able to bring into the classroom and, you know, embed it into whatever type of curriculum we were in. So I loved using parents as one of the ways that I could, you know, bring in the actual community. And then because that's what makes up my classroom community, it was really just having conversations with students as well. Getting to know them helped me with being able to know what I could bring in, what I should bring in, and some of the things that I might need to stray away from. So- Oh my gosh, what a great way to involve families and to provide those opportunities for your students to kind of live into the experiences, their history and their community and their family heritage and allowing students to step into that in like a powerful way. I love that. And it's a very specific choice you have to make as an educator, right? You know, you mentioned, all right, I have a resource for this thing. Can I find a better one? You know, like Mm -hmm. that's not, that's not easy, right? Like there's, you know, teachers do a lot. It's, it's such a hard job. There's so much time and effort and energy that even goes into finding that one right resource, but for you to commit to that, like, no, I want to find something that better represents my students. I want to find, or even just an alternative or an additional, you know, a different, a different piece to bring in to complement that piece. It's definitely an extra piece. It's an extra step, but it sounds like that's really worth it for you. Not only in, you know, enhancing your instruction, but building that rapport with students, building that rapport with families. I can imagine that went a long way for, you know, your, your connections with your students in the classroom. It really did. And with that particular school where um, I learned so much being in the IB school because it's about the approach and about the experiences we could allow the students to take on. And a lot of it was like the teachers being able to facilitate whatever the big idea is, but it was really students using inquiry and creating their own experiences. And so one of the big pushes of that type of school and that type of curriculum is students being able to take action. And so in particular, because you're going to find a wide range. I mean, my class picture was a melting pot of the world. I had in one given year, I think I had 13 different nationalities inside of my classroom, which was so cool for my school picture. But it's like, you know, there are still some, some students who were like, they were not represented in Other students were like, well, I want to take action. Like, let's write a book if we can't find a book. Let's create a poster if there's not one that exists. So it was really, really great watching students leading these initiatives, especially if I said, well, I looked really hard. You looked really hard. We both searched on Google on the smart board. What can, what, like, what's left to do? And they're just like, well, we're not going to give up. We can, we can do this. And I'm like, great, let's make it happen. And so they were just able to take action for those times when, something did not exist, which was really cool. Right before this podcast, we were just talking about that very thing. It's like with ChatGPT and like the different technologies that students have access to now are like the future, their future is, they're not going to need so much content knowledge. They're going to need to know how to take action on what they what they consume or how to look at it and determine if it has bias. They're going to need these critical thinking 
problem solving skills and what a great experience. If you can we dig into the inquiry piece a bit, because I'm thinking about like what what you learned in that IB school that you maybe brought into some of your other experiences, I would guess that inquiry is probably one of them. Yes. And so I think, you know, just understanding and knowing that even if a student is nine years old, 10 years old, they have ideas and they are able to think critically. And so whenever being able to kind of see all of these ideas come out, especially ones that I myself did not think of being the professional and being the expert of teaching them, uh, that was like a turning point for me. And so it just, it really allowed me to sometimes really value the think time because ideas don't come quickly. And so moving into other schools, like when I went to other schools that weren't IB, I definitely took a lot of these types of values with me because sometimes for that great idea or that take action moment to come, it just allows silence. And I think that as adults, we get so uncomfortable in silence. We just want to rush in and answer it for the student because we're like, oh man, this is uncomfortable. But it's like, no, in that silence is where the ideas generate, you know, students can start piecing together. They can start thinking critically and that takes time. And so it's one of those skills that I can teach students where it's like when we're brainstorming, it, it sometimes shouldn't be a fast process. Sometimes it is, but sometimes it's not, and that's okay. And so that inquiry piece was just so pivotal to be able to bring that into all of the different content areas, science, social studies, reading, writing, yeah. math. It's just so cool to see it. And so just being able to honor that wait time and then being able to allow the share time for students to actually share aloud, which is going to then spur like some other student to think about something else. So that domino effect is so worth it. Mm-hmm. Can you talk to us a little bit about kind of, you know, you mentioned it, you really tried to apply that to different subjects, kind of some practical for our teachers listening, like, okay, this kind of sounds interesting, but like, where do I just kind of just stop and have some more breathing room? Or are there any kind of particular strategies, whether it's for particular subjects, or even just kind of in general, what are some tips you have for maybe starting to dip your toes into this kind of inquiry based, um, you know, classroom environment? So with this, because this is how I had to start, which is like, oh, man, this can go real deep, real fast. But I would say if you've never really, you know, played around with making it intentional to definitely start on the very surface, which is still really, really good for students. And so, for instance, you know, we have those students who can be able to cipher and do like math in their heads. And but sometimes it's really good to just like say, you know what, even if you have it, you can give me a symbol it can be low. That way other kids aren't feeling anxious about it, but they can give symbols, but it's like, we're going to have wait time. Sometimes I have set like timers. I've used a chime when it's time for us to actually start sharing out our different ideas. So using a timer, there's nothing wrong with it. And I think it protects those students who do need that time just to think, because again, I had a high ESL population, but when it came times for problem solving, let's say, a great part for that would be um, I would have sometimes like guided questions that were already like thought of ahead of time and being able to post those. I would never make mention to them, but I knew that if it was posted somewhere and the kids came in, they were naturally going to start kind of like looking at it. And so I could already pre-generate some of that, some of that, you know, that buzz and the idea and the, the, the spark of like the curiosity. And that's what, where the inquiry really comes from is the curiosity. Sometimes I would place an object in the room 
and I would never make mention of it. I would have, you know, a sticker somewhere. And it's just about getting kids to like pay attention and to start generating. You can see it happening. So you can do this with questions. You can do this with bringing in something. You can do this with specifically asking something and asking them to wait. But yeah, it's and it gets to be really fun too. It's so intriguing. <laughs> that is so good. The first thing that kind of came to mind when you said that about posting the questions is like, you know, tell someone not to think about an elephant and then you're thinking about an elephant now, right? And so it's like, if you have a question, especially if, if you're, you know, if you're like you and you're learning about your students' interests, you know about their, you know, you kind of, you can know what little things you could kind of hook them with going to get them to start thinking about it even without teaching. And then I love the idea of like an object that you put in the room and you see who notices and who not. And I imagine you do that a couple times, then kids are maybe looking and they're, and they're kind of even anticipating like, what's, is there anything new or different? here? <laughs> You're kind of priming them to be thoughtful of their environment, to mm-hmm. think ahead of time. I think that's a really, really neat strategy. And it was really like great for inferencing because that's what skill that's really, really hard. And so it's like, well, let's look at this. I mean, I would also, I would often, because I'm, you know, I'm not, I mean, I don't mind to date myself, but it's like, I'm about to be 39. So some of the things that I had when I was their age, they do not exist anymore, but I still have them. So bringing in a tape cassette, seeing what they could say, this thing is for, and what, what is it? How do we use it? What is it for? That type of thinking is like where it comes from. And that's where ideas come from. Someone had this and then they decided, okay, we can't do this anymore. And then they had a CD, but bringing a CD in, kids were like, is it a Frisbee? Like, do I throw it? Like, (laughs) do I string it and hang it on an ornament for my tree? Like the stuff they would say, but that's like the kind of thinking I wanted them to do. And so that is a great Mm -hmm. way to like develop the, the talk and develop the thinking And then that's going to, that is going to, um, that type of thinking is going to then transfer when it's time for reading. And it's like, well, what do we think about this? What about that character? What about this place? When we get to science, well, when we add these together, what do we think could happen? Why do we think that happened? And now they're thinking on a whole deeper level and that's what it's all about. So you've given them the, the framework to think about these things. And actually when you put the object in the room, it's actually kind of like a very basic beginning of that framework. So like put a picture up on the board and just observe like what's going on here and then start to make those, maybe even then start to ask the questions and then start to make the inferences. So you've given them the framework, you've given them the resources around the room to turn to if they're stuck. That for me was the hardest part with fifth graders because it's like <laughs> they didn't even know what to ask next. It was so challenging for them, but to have that resource to pull from and then your role, it sounds like, shifted into the the you were asking the questions. You're just kind of furthering their thinking rather than giving them the thoughts. That's so powerful. Yeah. And I, th- I think it's the prompting, right? So it's like once you ask them the question or once they come up with it, it's like we can always go deeper. And I think that's where that higher order thinking comes in. So I would just keep digging. How far can we go? And then what? Okay, well, but what about that? Okay, but if we have these two things, and what about that? And I would, I will, I would say too, if you are wanting to do this, there's nothing wrong with using sentence frames, sentence starters, or even question starters, because again, I'm doing this with students who are high ESL, um, special education, you know, 
just all types of different students, but in a Title I setting. And so we're not coming with all of the background and all of the experiences, and these students were thriving. So using those sentence frames and sentence stems are golden because it just gets them starting and they can be able to finish it out. That's so great. And if you repeat that, then they that becomes part of what they use. And that's embedded in you're helping them kind of be able to better communicate, whether it's, you know, verbally or being able to write, you're kind of giving those, giving them a tool that can really extend. I think what's neat about it too, is how you can scale it, not only, uh, you know, many subjects, scales up and down for age, right? I'm thinking of, you know, how much, how often I spend time, you know, explaining to my four-year-old what like a basic thing around the house is, but then how you can scale this all the way up to, you know, I taught seniors and I taught, you know, college students for a while. And you can do the same thing with them. It just becomes, you know, more or less complex depending on what the object is. Maybe it's a relic from the nineties, you know, (laughs) or maybe it's a really complex um, work of art or, you know, book or show or whatever it is. So I think it's really neat that that can really apply in so many different scenarios and it strengthens a number of different skills at the same time. Yes, for sure. You must have, I think what you've shared in your journey so far has been so great. You must have faced some challenges along the way. What would you say is kind of the biggest challenge you've faced as an educator so far? So as an educator, I mean, there are definitely, I think, challenges with all of the grade levels I've taught outside of just, you know, forming teams and having to deal with personalities that may go well together and may not. But, you know, so those are all challenges that I think like a lot of people could relate to. But one challenge that was very, very pivotal for me was whenever I did transition from the classroom into an interventionist role. And I was then able to just serve students with um, who were the lowest of the grade levels with reading and writing. But, you know, I love the role. This was like by far to date my favorite role that I've had, but it was challenging moving out of the classroom. It was challenging having to take on admin roles because whenever you're in those types of roles, it's like, you're not in the classroom anymore. So those demands were very, very challenging for me just to try to figure out my scheduling and making sure that I'm working with kids with fidelity and all the kids have their minutes. And then I was sent off to do dyslexia training, which at the time I was like, oh my gosh, this is one more thing. But then it was like so cool to find out how, you know, Orton Gillingham, I got to be trained and I'm like, okay, well, this is great. But, you know, scheduling coordinating over all different areas, having hiccups hiccups in your day, being pulled left and right, not being able to go into a classroom and do what you need to do was by far one of the biggest challenges um, that I've had to face. But ultimately, I just had to give myself a lot of grace and recognize that, you know, I'm new to this and every school year is going to be different, but whatever, wherever I am pulled, I know that there's a need for me in that moment. So I just kind of had to switch my mindset around it and not see it as just like an annoying challenge, but also to see it as like, okay, this is an opportunity. What can I learn from this? What students can I be able to impact by being in this classroom and just kind of like change on things like that. And that's definitely helped me outside of the classroom (laughs) as well with communication and scheduling. And just balancing, balancing all of the things. But that was a big, big challenge within education. Would you do it again? The the intervention role? Yeah. Would you? I'm just thinking of all the teachers who are listening to the podcast episode and thinking this is the time of year too, where you're like, should I switch grade levels? Should I go to AIS math? Like, should I do this or that? Like, what would you say to teachers having gone through that experience if they're facing 
a question like that. Is this the time to make a move in my career to sh- or shift to a different position? It, it's worth it. And it's worth a try because I will say when I made the shift, I was kind of at that point where I'm like, can I keep doing this? I Once the kids come, I'm like, okay, we're good. But that summertime and the time when I don't have the kids and the weekends and all the prep and the planning, I'm just like, I'm, I'm burnt out. I will say that like the change of job, even though it had a lot of other demands, it was exactly what I needed to kind of give me like an energized, like, like, you know, just a rejuvenated spirit for teaching. And it did keep me like my days flew by, you know, so there are definitely benefits of going to grade levels below grade levels above roles outside of the classroom. And if you're curious in the slightest, I would say give it a try. And the way that education is set up, there's always going to be a need back in that current position. And now I'm actually, I'm able to sub. So I'm subbing in (laughs) at my niece's school. And so it's been, now I get to do everything. I'm, I'm the music teacher. I'm second grade teacher. I'm a fifth grade teacher. I, I sub in sped and it's, it's been so great. So Definitely give it a try and you'll just never, you'll never know unless you try it. Great advice. And I like the idea of uh, the, even just energizing, right? Even if it's just for one year and you decide to go back, as you said, right? There are classroom positions open. So, you know, you can probably <laughs> find your way back there if you want to, but yes. just that change, that change, mixing things up, um, seeing something in a new light, um, taking on a different, you know, grade level or even something outside of school just to try can really kind of refresh and energize you in a different way. Sure can. You need a fresh start. A lot. And that's the one that's really great thing about education. You get a fresh start. Really, you know, it's sometimes scary, I think, to make those jumps, especially if it's a shift in what your responsibilities are, but you yes. get a fresh start every single year. <laughs> so let's dive into the strategies. We talked kind of big theory around inquiry and like getting students um, involved and taking action. What would you say has been one of the most memorable or successful lessons that you've done that teachers could maybe even try? So at the IB school, I'm going to keep referencing this because before I was in an IB school, like, you know, I was just like in a general school and this is a general school too, but they just had different principles that I had to actually take on and do in order to be compliant. But in this school, they have different planners and they call them planners and they're basic, um, they're different, just different, um, umbrellas of themes. And one of them is how we express ourselves. And so in different grade levels from K all the, well, actually pre-K, we had pre-K, pre-K all the way to fifth grade would do it. It would just be a different scale of what their project was. But with the how we express ourselves, it was so cool because their final project they had to do was talking about how they overcame hardships. And they were able to express being able to take something that was really, really horrible or hard or a challenge and how they were able to overcome it or come out on top or not be held down by it however they wanted to. So we had some students who were writing poetry, some were, you know, recording videos, some brought a guitar and were like playing, you know, strumming music that they made. Some were, you know, doing art in the moment as they're telling their story. And like, it was just the neatest thing ever. And so from that, it allowed me to always keep in mind that whenever you are wanting a task to be done, it is okay to allow students the opportunity and option of being able to create it and have choice in how they can be able to turn in that project to you. Because before it's just like, here's a rubric, here's your manila folder, here's your cutouts, 
put it on there and then turn it in and everything's cookie cutter. But it was just so neat to see the creativity that these kids had. And some of them are doing dances and things like that. So that is one of the, that's one of the planners, how we express ourselves. And that is something that I took into my next school that was not IB. And we still had a little unit on where we could be able to show how we can be able to express who we are. And by way of, you know, we're here today, even though I went through this and you would never know it looking at me. Oh my gosh. I have cool layers to that as far as the, you're taking the experience that the individual has had and Mm -hmm. you're letting them kind of show that unique and, um, you know, what's different and special about them and and why they're Mm -hmm. there. And then using the format to kind of encourage that, right? Like there's very meta, right? Like very, very strengthening what you're trying to get them to do um, and kind of channeling into different formats is really neat. And it's preparing them for the future that they're, again, like coming back to the future readiness in in the future that they're preparing for, there will be a lot of choice in how you can express yourself. And they're going to need, that's a big challenging, you know, like sea of different choices you could use to express yourself. So what do I want to do? What do I want to explore? And then having them, I love that, like a time they overcame a challenge. I think I did presentations on like the ocean and World War II. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but you, yeah. you're really tapping into your own identity and really having to think critically about that. And, you know, so even if you do use choice on how you express yourself with a regular topic like World War II, but then also being able to bring in some of these components that allow them to reflect on themselves. And how old were these kids that you were doing this with? They were fourth grade. Yeah. Yep. Fourth That's, grade students. So it's doable. Yeah. So. It's doable. It's doable. It really, really is doable. And again, um, pre-K did it. It just looked different. But this was fourth grade. And I think that the biggest thing is that I always, after that experience of seeing what they came and because I really didn't know. But when I saw like on the day of and parents were coming and other classes were able to experience this, I was just mind blown. But it just kind of made me want to say, oh my gosh, to all those students I had before this, you know, how many did I like stifle and like stunt their creativity from? And like, what more could they have given me had I said, you don't just have to write a paragraph. You can be able to type it. You can be able to sing it. You can be able to write a poem about it. How much more in depth could they have showed me their knowledge on whatever content area it was had I allowed them to have a, a more variety? of how they could be able to show it. So that was like one of the big, the best and memorable, like successful lessons that I've done there. And I've taken on since then. Did your students ever feel like, did any of them get stuck? I'm imagining my fifth graders. And and sometimes when I would give them too many options, they would like panic because it's just, they're just not used to it. Yes. Yes. And so to to start, it's kind of like we do kind of reel it in. So whenever I did it, I would always have a writing option. I would always have an illustration, like a drawing option for those kids who are artsy. And let's be real in fourth grade, fifth grade, you, you don't have time to draw. Like we are, we are studying for a test. And so I definitely wanted to make sure that there was always the, they had to have a written component. So even if they drew something or did a video, they would have to have something in writing. But I always wanted to make sure that there was an art form that could be done with paper. I always wanted to make sure that there was a technology option. And then we just kind of basically had a conversation about what that could look like. And then for any students who did not know what they wanted to do, we just had one-on-ones to try to figure out what is the best for them. And I would basically share what I've observed in you is that you like ABC. They would tell me kind of what they liked. And then we would kind of create a best fit project for them. 
And then that's how we kind of did for those students who um, needed a little bit more support because it does happen. Mm-hmm. So good. Okay. I feel like we could keep talking for hours. We're trying to keep these episodes short. You gave so many wonderful pieces and tidbits in here. And I think we're going to go right into the lightning round question. So Megan Kay, passing it over to you. She always does the lightning round. <laughs> Megan on Megan lightning round. Let's go. All <laughs> right. <have>. So <laughs> um, Megan, what is your go-to activity or lesson plan when you need some time to fill? You've got a little extra space. What is, what's your go-to? It's either going to be boggle writing where we just have letters, they can create words, they're writing sentences because I'm a big proponent of writing. It's going to be any quick writing kind of activities like quick writes, what if writing, pick for writing. That's going to be anything that's really quick, five minutes or so, but writing was one of those big areas that we always needed help in. So I always would revert to what can we do to get you writing? I know it's lightning round, but what we have to know, what's the four, what's the pick four? Pick four is where I would show showcase usually around eight different pictures, um, eight to 10 pictures, and they would have to pick four of those pictures and they would have to put it in a creative story. So however oh they God. wanted to do it, they could, they just had to cre- pick the four pictures at random, or they could actually choose them, create a story. And for those students who really kind of couldn't generate a story, they just had to use the pictures and create sentences with each one. Love that. Simple, effective, <laughs> creative. Yes. Really neat. And the kids loved it. They don't realize that they're writing. So it's great. Yeah. When <laughs> Anytime you can trick them is, is good, right? <laughs> Perfect. All right. So next question, what is the funniest thing that has ever happened to you in the classroom? A singing telegram that came to my classroom, but it was not actually for me. It was for the teacher next door. And so, <laughs> they, so there was, there was a man that came in, full costume, singing um, happy birthday. And actually her birthday was on her anniversary. So it was like a happy birthday with the anniversary whole big thing. And my kids were like, we didn't know you were married. I was like, I'm not. Um, And then we realized that it was for the next door. So um, yeah, that is the funniest thing. That's great. That's pretty fun. I love that the kids called you out on it too. Wait a second. They did. They're like, they were like, one, it's we didn't know it was your birthday, but two, we did not know that you were married. <laughs> More importantly. <laughs> All right. And the last one we have for you today is what is your favorite game to play in the classroom? How do you like to have fun with your students? I love playing this or that or would you rather because it's so quick. We can easily do the options. I could even involve kids in doing the options. But with those, it allows me to get to know them a little bit more and it allows the students to get to know each other a little bit more. And so doing this all throughout the year is just a great way for that community building and just to also provide some laughs and just some explanations. So any of those games like this or that, would you rather? I love being able to embed into the game, uh, the class day, the classroom day. Thank you so much. This episode was really great. I love talking about inquiry and taking action and involving community and identity. I feel like we covered it all. You are amazing. Where can our listeners connect with you? Thank you both so much for having me. I have enjoyed just chatting all things with you all today. If you are wanting to come find me or connect, Instagram is the best way at The Literacy Dive, or you can be able to listen to episodes on The Literacy Dive podcast. Oh, I am definitely hopping over to that podcast for sure. (laughs) We're also going to have Megan on the That Teacher podcast. Um, So if you want to hear a little behind the scenes of what kind of her journey has been like sharing her thought leadership online, um, you can hop over there and hear a little behind the scenes. 
Okay, thank you both, Megan's. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you. You're so welcome. See you all in the next episode. If you had a light bulb moment during this episode or thought of an idea to share, join us inside our podcast community to tell us your thoughts on both the extracurricular and that teacher podcast. We have a space for you to comment and chat with one another about each episode. We'll also pop in with a fun question every Sunday night, like, what's your most embarrassing teaching moment? We believe that sharing our experiences as educators is what keeps us moving, learning, and experiencing more of a sense of connection. You can join us inside the community to access all the podcast episodes, bonus content, and discussion prompts at poppd.co slash podcast.